This week on Panoptivox, I had the distinct pleasure of uh, going to the Beth Jacob Synagogue in Hamilton, Ontario, and interviewing the rabbi, Hillel Laveri Yisraeli. Fascinating guy, world traveler, has lived in you know, Sweden and Israel and Canada and been around. And talked to him about his experiences with hate, um, you know, both in Sweden and in, in Canada, sadly. Um, and talk to him about community and what it is that we can do about hate and, and his perspectives on these kinds of things. And it was a really interesting conversation that I, I think has a, a lot of value in shedding light on, you know, the, uh, the obvious experience of the, the Jewish people with uh, ongoing hate crimes and um, how to continue on um, in the face of that kind of thing. So... Um, as, as ever, I'm exploring what the F is happening in Hamilton. And I said F because I interviewed a rabbi and I'm not going to curse on this one. So, would it be more proper to call you Hillel or to call you Rabbi? Um, you can call me Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel, formally, cool. Or that works best. As friends, you can just call me Hillel. Well, I was, I was fascinated we're Facebook friends, so I saw yeah. the R apostrophe Hillel, and it's my favorite guitar player is Hillel Slovak from the Red Hot Chili Peppers in the 80s. Hmm. And I was like, is this a different way of saying a name similar to Hillel, or is that a concatenation of Rabbi? It's and, just, and, for yeah. Rabbi, yeah. Uh-huh. And that was... I don't know, that was way back in the early Facebook days where mm-hmm. you couldn't really choose a title or the, you had much less uh, options. So uh-huh. I just thought that would be a good way to indicate the rabbi bit as exactly. part of the first name. Um, you're the rabbi at Beth Jacob Synagogue in Hamilton, Ontario. Yes, I am. Which uh, you've been here about four, four years? Yeah, a little over four. And, and I'm, I'm so glad you're here because you, you seem to be a really good voice in the community. We've bumped into each other here and there at like, you know, No Hayden Hamilton events and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So thank yeah. you for that. It's, uh, I think it's profoundly important stuff. I agree. I agree. It's, uh, where are you from originally? I was born and grew up in Vancouver. Okay, beautiful. And I lived there for the first so 16 or so years of my life, mm-hmm. and then I spent a year in Ottawa, and I finished high school there, uh, and then I started my adult career. I went to rabbinical school in Skokie, Illinois for two years. Oh, wild. Um, it's a beautiful area, though. Yeah, it was it was interesting, an interesting experience, uh-huh. immersion in uh, more American uh, Well, that's as America of, uh, as America gets, yeah. right? Um, and then after two years there, I moved to Jerusalem. Oh, cool. And I lived in Israel for 16 years. Mm. Um, 13 of those years were in Jerusalem. Three of those years were in a city called Netanya, which mm-hmm. is a coastal city um, near, uh, halfway between Tel Aviv and Haifa. Um, and uh, then three years in Sweden, in Gothenburg, Sweden. Lovely. And then Hamilton. How did you find Sweden? I was looking for a job, and they were looking for a rabbi. No, but how did what did you think of Sweden? It's a, it's an interesting oh, how place. I, how did I find it? Um, yeah, I it was great. I, it was a great experience. I really enjoyed mm-hmm. it. Um, country is like one big IKEA. Uh, everything <laughs> everything's is efficient, perfect, and uh, they even have like lines on the sidewalk so that everyone can walk in a straight line. Uh, oh, that's awesome. Um, very very 
Yeah, it's efficient. like an orderly society. Orderly, a friend right. lives there and is her, she's married to a Swedish fellow, but it is still a struggle to get citizenship. Mm-hmm. So she's going through, you know, jumping through all of the hoops. And it's quite an effort to become a citizen of Sweden, which I wouldn't have imagined, especially yes. if you're married in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, for the most part, I, I really enjoyed living there. I learned the language, mm-hmm. I speak Swedish. And, oh, that's uh, amazing. In three years. Yeah, I went to a, like a university course to uh, learn the language quickly. I needed it for my work. so. Um, I managed to unlearn French the moment I stepped out of high school. Mm-hmm. And that's about as far as I, I go with language. And I know all of the curse words in Polish and how to flirt. And that's about the extent <laughs> of it. And I'm not even Polish. I just have lots of Polish friends. Um, how have you found Hamilton to be as an experience? Love it. Uh, I've really learned to love Hamilton. Uh, Really glad to be here. Nice city. I I don't know. I guess I have that weakness that I tend to really enjoy the city that I happen to be living in at the time. Yeah. So right now, Hamilton's my favorite, and uh, I really love it here. I hope to stay forever. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, Yeah, it's... uh, I guess in some ways it reminds me of growing up in Richmond, B.C., Mm -hmm. suburb of Vancouver. It's... uh, it's not huge like Toronto, which yeah. I could never imagine myself living in. Uh, but it's when it's very green, just like Richmond. Yeah, it's a exactly. lot of trees and escapes into the right. woods and stuff like that. Right. That's. Right. I mean, basically, that's why I'm here. Is I uh, I grew up on Manitoulin Island, which is like the escarpment extends all the way up into northern Ontario, mm-hmm. into the middle of Lake Huron, and that's where I grew up in a small town of a thousand people. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I find myself every once in a while getting into this like oh god i've got to get out of here Hmm. and lately it's all been related to the hate stuff that's happening and well not the hate stuff that's happening because i feel like i've always been hearing about those things there's always something in hamilton i don't think that's new but what's new for me is the lack of response from public officials and police and stuff like that it's it's become you know, I'm sitting here making a podcast about it and a documentary about it. It's become a rising concern for me. And I saw what happened here a couple of weeks ago, and that's terrible. And I'm I'm so sorry that that happened because. Uh, and to explain it for folks that are listening that might not necessarily um, know. Um, a swastika was scrawled on the sidewalk. Was it up front of the building or at the side of the building? It was in the front. In the right front, front of the building. The entrance. Yeah, a swastika and then Jews with the word slashed through. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's straight up a crime. It's not, not uh, even questionable. Um, mm-hmm. And I saw that they laid charges, which I was very glad to hear. And you corrected me on on a thing that I was I was very grateful to you. Um, I saw that you had posted that they'd laid charges, and I, I, was, I felt immediately frustrated by the charge that they laid, which was just mischief That's under 5,000, um, because it's not that kind of crime. I've been charged with mischief before, <laughs> you know, and it wasn't anything you know, too, too terrible, uh, just you know, misspent youth. But that becomes a situation where they, the judge looking at the mischief charge 
shifts it into a hate charge or the crown looks at that? So I don't exactly know the way it works, but my understanding is that they need to be charged for mischief because the actual action that they did drawing on our parking lot is mischief mm-hmm. um, of a hateful nature. Obviously, it's a, uh, it was obviously directed at us because we're Jewish and, and uh, you know, where you write no Jews on a, on a yeah. synagogue, what else could that be other than hate? But um, in the sentencing stage, that's mm-hmm. when the judge is supposed to take the hate crime nature of it into consideration for a, a higher sentence. Yeah. Um, and it's, I didn't, I don't remember the ages of the fellows that were involved. They were both 19. Both 19. And I mean, I remember being 19 and I was an idiot. But that's another level of that's not just idiocy and and i can't just write it off as youthful silliness or something that isn't taken seriously it's yeah. really disconcerting it was and, it, and you could tell that it was uh, planned uh, yeah. they came with flashlights and uh, they, they came prepared <sighs> for this um and uh, not well planned because they didn't know there were cameras true but, yeah true um and uh, and then they went on after they graffitied here four times they went on t- and apparently on kent street they did some anti-black graffiti the oh. same people so uh yeah and uh, at least one of them lives in the neighborhood yeah and uh uh and some of our congregants actually knew one or two of, of these people when the names were yeah. made public they went to school with them or to after school activities or something of that sort it's, uh-huh. it's really concerning you know the um the graffiti itself was done in chalk so uh-huh. kind of easy to wash away but the sentiments behind it yeah. those aren't easy to wash away and it's well, not that's, so you're somebody who's you know not head of community but somebody who nurtures a community um how has the feeling of the group of people that you work with been? Um, everybody is shocked and hurting yeah. and like really surprised to think that in 2019 our neighbors could have these yeah. feelings and be using a symbol on our building that, that we still have uh, memories. Some of our people have memories of that symbol being used to kill uh-huh. our people. And, yep. uh, uh, so it's it's shocking, it's hurtful, it's it makes us very sad, and uh, you start to wonder, you know, is this really a home for us? It can't be how, uh, but um, but the support we got from the community was also very positive and overwhelming. We mm-hmm. had uh, uh, within a day, there were uh, beautiful chalk drawings made all yeah. around the sidewalks, uh, messages of love, and so on, and we did get. Uh, a lot of uh, support from the police and from the municipality and our city mm-hmm. councilor and so people showed up and it was just two days before Yom Kippur, the yeah. holiest day of the year for the Jewish people and so a lot of um, a lot of people, uh, elected officials and so on, showed up for that service um, to I show solidarity. Um, and that was uh, that was heartening and uh, uh, at the same time, I uh, used that opportunity then when they were sitting there. Uh, and when so many of our people were sitting there also to to say that we all need to use this as a learning experience. We're yeah. lucky that it was just with chalk and that it can be washed away. But we have to use our experience to uh, promote 
uh, anti-hate mm -hmm. uh, in this city and make sure that this city uh, is safe for everyone. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it was just, you know, a couple of days after our incident that that 14-year-old uh, boy was murdered at his high school, which is still shocking me to it's, my core. I, I, yeah. Um, and, and it's all hate. It's mm -hmm. just there's hate loose in the air. That's sort of how it feels uh -huh. to me. And What's, I, I mean, I, I don't want to paint that incident as being directly related to the climate of hate, but I have this growing concern. Um, and it's growing with the... There's a permission that's given mm -hmm. when hate isn't responded to um, in, in good ways, where it just kind of it kind of swells and people expect that there's no consequences for the things that they do that are damaging other people like what happened here oppresses an entire community you know it, it makes mm -hmm. it makes you think before you step out the door just a little bit right. and and the next one's just a little bit more and the next one's just a little bit more so like what happened at pride for me mm -hmm. wasn't like this thing that completely destroyed my life but the lack of response to it gives permission for more of those things. And it kind of, it shrinks you down a little bit. And like, that's, that's my big concern is like, the more permission that's granted by not acting on these things and uh, the lack of response publicly, I feel like there's more and more danger of like actual serious things to happen. And not to say that, you know, chalk on a sidewalk, of that nature isn't serious, but I worry about like, you know, people doing very bad things and, yep. you know, and I, you know, fingers crossed that's not coming, but I feel like uh, it's slightly more likely every time something like this happens. Yeah. I worry about the same things. Uh, I, I worry about the same things. And, uh, you know, when we lived in Sweden, actually, we started experiencing anti-Semitism there, yeah. it, uh, built up as we lived there. Um, and, uh, it started really the first day we were there, actually. Um, I went to do a hospital visit at one of the, at the big hospital, Salgrinska, and walking on the grounds of the hospital, these two skinheads shouted Sieg Heil at me from oh. across the street. And that was my welcome to Sweden. Yeah. Um, but then after that, things got pretty quiet for the most part. There were weird little instances uh, here and there mm -hmm. um, an elderly woman trying to convince me to take my head covering off on the tram because I, it made me look uh, different from everybody else and having uh -huh. this weird conversation with her about but why should i care yeah. about being different it's who i am it's part of my identity um and uh, she, she kept you know on her own but you should be the same as everyone else why do you need to be mm -hmm. different put it in your pocket and yeah. uh, you'll look the same as as everyone. Um, but towards the end of our stay, uh, I started getting death threats and I got a, a oh. really specific, scary uh, death threat over email from someone who um, basically threatened to burn the synagogue down with me and my family inside it. Yeah. And it was like a don't worry, I'm going to do this soon type of thing. Wow. Uh, and uh, I passed it on to the police right away. Yeah. And they didn't do a thing about it. And that was really <clears throat> uh -huh. 
showed us that maybe it's time to, to move on. So now we're here in Canada, and uh, it's not up to that <clears throat> yeah. level yet. No, but, uh, no. <laughs> Sorry, I'm upset by that, but like, how do you reconcile something like that within yourself? It's uh, like moving forward from that um, is... For me, like I'm a person who's ridden, ridden with anxiety, so something like that would stop me in my tracks in very big ways, and I don't know if I would know how to deal with it. I've gotten death threats, but not like it's idiots on Facebook who think that I've told them something awful or shown them up, and they're just like, oh, I'll kill you, and then they go away because I blocked them and they don't know who I am, you know, that kind of thing. But that's a like serious directly there in your community situation mm -hmm. <clears throat> and to not have any kind of serious response to it um how do you step forward from there or was it was were the only steps forward to remove yourself from the situation no so even that i think removing myself from the situation was kind of a mostly realization after I'd done it that, oh, that was a good idea to get yeah. out. Um, at the time, I was really upset and shaken up and, and so on, and it just took time and uh -huh. I somehow managed to go forward. Um, it's not a new thing that people hate Jews. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I have memories as a kid being shouted at on the street. Uh huh. So, uh, not in that level, but um, I guess it's just a part of my. It's kind of sad if you think about it. It's kind of part of my identity that yeah. at some part of me sort of expects this to happen. So mm -hmm. when it does, I somehow get through it and move on. Yeah. Um, so, the decision to become a rabbi. That's, you know, sometimes that's a family tradition. Sometimes that's, you know, I'm sure it's what your mother wanted for you, is, is my guess. <laughs> um, but Not really. No, no, really? Oh, cool. No, no. Um, it was something that I wanted to do for myself yeah. since a very young age, five or six years old. Uh -huh. I can't really explain it. I just felt drawn to it. Yeah. Was the your decision to do that and, like, you know, fully engage with the, the spirituality of your people and the traditions of your people in, in what I consider a very beautiful way. Like, I, I think that maybe a lot of people don't understand what a rabbi is and they're just like, oh, it's like a minister, which mm. is, it's kind of like a minister in that, you know, you have a responsibility to a group of people and you get up there many times a week and speak in front of them and stuff like that. But Perhaps you could explain a little bit of the difference for folks. Um, well, I'll just describe <clears throat> what it is mm -hmm. that I do then. Uh, excuse me. Um, it's a lot of teaching, a uh -huh. lot of study and teaching, one-on-one um, -on -one teaching, teaching classes. Um, and then it's a lot of pastoral counseling, meeting with people who are going through tough times, yeah. uh, finding them help, mm -hmm. um, helping people find a job sometimes, you know, yeah. all, all kinds of, uh, of uh, things uh, uh, like that on a, during the week. Um, 
a lot of one-on-one -on -one things, hospital visits, yeah. uh, comforting, uh, grieving families. Mm -hmm. um, if someone in the community dies, I usually rush over to the hospital and stay with the family until the body is picked up. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I meet with them to discuss the life of the person and prepare for the funeral, and then I do the funeral. Yeah. Um, and the regular prayer service is running them and uh, giving talks at them about different uh, issues that are happening in our community. Uh -huh. I, I try to, to take lessons from our tradition and use that to uh, help us understand what our role is in uh -huh. life and, and in the community. So, well, I think what I, I was digging for there was it's kind of a dialogue that you're engaged with ongoingly and, and a connection into history in a transformative kind of way. Yeah. And and that's what I've always found fascinating about um, you know the rabbinical tradition is that uh, the, you know the the Torah is a transformative document and mm -hmm. it's transformed almost like just a little bit by every rabbi that's engaged in it in every community and that really fascinates me. That's definitely true. And there was uh, something um, you might remember when we had that thing at City Hall a few years ago with the trans protocol yeah. that I spoke at. Mm -hmm. um, that was, we had some very uh, right-wing Christian sure. people uh, talking from a biblical perspective of, uh, you know, uh, homophobic, transphobic uh -huh. uh, remarks. And my feeling was, you can't just re open the Bible, read a verse, and then say, okay, now I know what to do. You mm -hmm. have to take all the rabbinic traditions into yeah. consideration and, and see how, how uh, our people have been actually living by these words for mm -hmm. so many years. And uh, what I mentioned there was that we have people in our rabbinic tradition who were trans sure. and were respected as that. And, and uh, just opening up Leviticus and pulling out one verse mm -hmm. and saying, okay, now everybody's going to hell. That's not the way it works. <laughs> um, Isn't that Levi what Leviticus is for? <laughs> Don't dare eat dates. Or wait, it's figs, not dates. They're terrible for everyone. I'm not a fan <laughs> of figs anyway. Um, and, and I mean, even what it says in there, it, the most direct translation that you can dig into is that it's like it's against cross-dressing, which mm -hmm. I don't think I'm doing, you know. I did cross-dress a couple weeks ago. It was like 1 a.m. and I wanted to go for a walk, so I dressed up like a dude. Mm. And I tied my hair back, took the makeup off, just wore jeans and a t-shirt, and I was like... Dur, dur, dur. Well, you know, even about <clears throat> that, our tradition says that cross-dressing for um, a practical purpose mm -hmm. is not forbidden. For yeah. instance, right, there's no uh, prohibition for a man to put on uh, his wife's raincoat because mm -hmm. it's raining and he doesn't have his own coat sure. with him, even though it's putting on a very womanly pink uh, raincoat, uh -huh. not transgressing it, because doing it for a practical purpose. Yeah. The rabbis understood that transgression was only if it was being done in, in essence, let's say by a man, cross-dressing in order to be able to infiltrate a women's only space and then uh -huh. commit a sexual crime. Yeah. Which, so, I mean, those things, it, it's interesting, all of this bathroom conversation and stuff like that, the actual incidences of that kind of thing happening are crazy rare. Right. And it's, right. it's, it's always fascinated me how um, people's brains can get set into the things that are like very um, 
what's the word for it? I, I just extreme in their natures mm-hmm. because, you know, it's what about the children thing? Right. And it's important to protect children, don't get me wrong, and, and we should always take those things into consideration. But, you know, to the point where you're, you know, trying to oppress an entire group of people, maybe not so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but to rewind back to, oh, I wanted to ask just the choice to become a rabbi, you had experienced hate for, you know, being part, a person of Jewish descent. Was that something that you considered? Because it, it, it steps up your exposure to hmm. hate. Yeah, I, I don't know if uh, that was a part of my consideration. Yeah. It was, uh, I was brought up as Jewish from uh-huh. birth, my parents took me to synagogue week after week Mm -hmm. and I felt drawn to that spirituality in the service and it was just something that I and I felt a connection to God and Uh it was something I was always going to do and the anti-semitism I was aware of it yeah I was aware that I was different I went to music lessons and Uh I uh, uh, kept my kippah on and I uh, um, I always you know knew that during certain uh, uh, Christian religious songs, I would just remain silent and let mm-hmm. the others sing it, and uh, and then they would sing some kind of token dreidel song for Hanukkah or something oh. to make me feel better. I know, it was, dreidel, uh, dreidel, dreidel, dreidel. Exactly. I can't even remember the rest of it, but that was it. Um, <clears throat> it was definitely a part of my... Uh, yeah, it was, I, I knew it existed, yeah. but it, I don't think really that's what pushed me in that direction. I was mm-hmm. always pushed by a desire to help people and to, yeah. to, to do what I could in that way. Uh-huh. I, uh, I guess I looked up to rabbis for doing that, for being there for people, and I wanted to be able to do that too. That's a beautiful reason for it. I'm so glad. Um, I mean, it, it's the... The word Nazi gets thrown around a lot. And... And most of the time I don't object, but I, I'm very careful with my usage of it. It's, I'll call Paul Fromm, uh, you know, Hamilton, uh, a neo-Nazi, former neo-Nazi leader and whatnot. I'll call him one. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I feel like there's a lot of, you know, proto-fascism is, is a word that I've been using lately to describe the Yellow Vest group and, and that kind of stuff. And, and it doesn't necessarily, you know, they're not pointed you know, so if you, if you talk to the yellow vests about what they believe, they're like, well, we're, we're not sure that we should have so many immigrants. They're not like, we hate the Jews. But I feel like it's, it steps into that space. Yeah. Um, and, and it becomes very hard to draw a line of, like, you know, where do you really identify this stuff? Um, which is a curious thing because you know people speaking up about the stuff you know they're i'm gonna call a nazi a nazi and and i get that uh but it leads to not being able to sometimes those folks don't get quite as taken they're more easily dismissed i suppose Mm -hmm. and I, i guess i was wondering for you uh where does the beginnings of concern with that kind of stuff come from? You know, because 
I mean, you're a Canadian, as Canadian as me and anybody else that's here, and not an immigrant or anything like that, but identifying where the rising concerns come from, it, it feels like it comes from those spaces. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for yourself, I'm just kind of curious about how you feel about the rise of anti-immigrant sentiment and whether it relates to Jewishness in Canada. I think it does. I think, well, it worries me uh, for two reasons, maybe more. One is huh. that it wasn't that long ago that our people were needed a place to immigrate to. Emigrate to yeah. Uh, and Canada wasn't really that open for yeah. us. Um, my family uh, was actually here before both world wars. Um, but that that's rare mm -hmm. uh, among my peers growing up uh, it was everybody in my class in school uh, their grandparents were survivors holocaust survivors yeah. and i was one of the rare kids who uh, could say that my grandparents were all born in canada sure. and went and fought in the war they joined mm -hmm. the the royal air force the british army because the canadians nice. weren't in the war yeah. yet um because they wanted to fight against the Nazis. Uh -huh. um, but we uh, were, you know, really familiar with the none is too many line, and uh, uh -huh. Canada wasn't open to taking in the Jews when they needed to escape Germany and so many other countries as well. Yeah. So that uh, an, any anti-immigration policy to me is, uh, is scary yeah. because of that. Well, we're certainly not um, running out of space or resources. Right, yeah. right. And, uh, and then secondly, I think when you take that anti-immigration uh, sentiment to the next steps, mm -hmm. at some point you can start to discuss, well, who is a pure Canadian? Hey, old stock Canadians, right? sure. And then even those of us Jewish people who were born here, maybe we're not real Canadians. This is what yeah. happened in Germany mm -hmm. before the Holocaust. Not real Canadians. And then we'll be asked to leave or yeah. worse. Uh, so it's a, yeah. Um, I mean, the Torah keeps reminding us, love the stranger because you were once strangers in Egypt. Yeah. So we're supposed to use our collective memory of oppression and uh, being uh, saved from that oppression to help others. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what I think it's all about. Yeah. But it's, and I, I mean, one of the, the things about anti-immigrant sentiment is like, it's not, they're, they're not saying that about British people, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I've never said, heard them say that about New Zealanders or, you know, people from Australia or Ireland. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, it's a racial thing. Definitely. And... Well, and that's an interesting thing. I, I, I have a friend who, uh, he summed up the Trump thing in, in a really simple way to me. And I was like, oh, that's, it, it was kind of shocking because it was really glaring. And it was just a thing that I'd never thought about. It. And uh, I was sitting with two Jewish friends and, and one of them said to the other, he was like, oh, because of Trump, we're not white anymore. And I was like, <clears throat> and I, I mean, definitions of race are kind of, you know, ridiculous constructs that, only exist in persecutory senses, really. Um, but we have to engage with them because of those persecutory senses. So it's, 
that realization of like the othering of Jewish folks in in that kind of way of like along racial lines, whereas you know for the most part Jewish people are mostly white passing or whatever. I don't even know what that means, but um, the othering of it along a racial divide now seems much more present than it was a while ago, just in a general kind of sense. Um, and it, it's kind of like a, a rising sentiment. And I, I was uh, reading earlier, there was, there was an incident that happened years ago in Hamilton, the, the hanging of a, a black man. And um, because he had been accused of killing a white woman or see it gets confusing because in 50s Hamilton she had a Jewish last name Rosenblatt and uh, but wasn't Jewish all stories about that incident put her as Jewish and it becomes this like really complicated situation in which both of the people involved in it are othered hmm. In um, in a really interesting way, I'm, I, like I get I dig into history in like really nerdy kind of ways. So this is my current obsession is learning about this story, um, and and I think it's going to become part of the story of this documentary that I'm working on. Is it, like it's it's a really good example of uh, how people's victimhood can be dismissed when we yeah. other them, um, which is is kind of interesting because you know she is described as, you know, she's a victim of murder, you know, straight up shot, and that's what's important. But when the story is told, it becomes this, well, she was married and perhaps was having an affair and she was Jewish and, you know, and it makes it this thing that becomes the center of the story that's not necessarily the murdering of her. And then you've got the story of a, a black man who was hung and the blackness becomes a center of the story in the way, not that, you know, the question of his innocence or guilt being hung in 1953 isn't a complex thing, but mm -hmm. it's the center of it becomes the othering rather than the incidences of what actually happened to, you know, a human being. Um, and... I'm not really necessarily building to a question of this. You are You're reminding me that this, the general uh, colonial attitude is white. Yeah. And it comes through in all our, all our uh, newspaper, all our schooling, everything that, I mean, exactly. as a I gotta, young person here, I'm sure you read, you know, the great people who went across North America and, mm -hmm. and well, so we could slaughter the, uh -huh. the indigenous people here. Oh, I, I, figured out, <clears throat> I figured out a way of, of addressing this. So for me, for the vast majority of my life, I was like, you know, white male straight presenting. And everybody took me as such, and life was easy breezy, and there was never any othering of me, you know. And now I am constantly other. And, and I suppose there's like... There's a shift where in a lot of spheres, for the most part, traditionally over my lifetime, I've always felt like Jewish people didn't suffer that as directly, but I feel like it might be growing. And, and I wonder if you have a, a sense of that. Yeah, I mean, I think I've always felt like an other. Yeah. I never felt 
mainstream in Canada growing uh-huh. up. Um, my holidays were other, right? Uh, yeah. I didn't celebrate Christmas, but mm-hmm. when I had to do my holidays, uh, it was a work day for, uh, I mean, I was a kid at the time and my father had trouble getting days off work for the Jewish holidays. True enough. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I always, I guess, identified as other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's true that uh, if I took off my head covering, I can pass pretty well as a, as a white man. Yeah. But uh, but I never felt that way, mm-hmm. and uh, um, yeah. But we we really do. Um, I think society really likes to uh, pay attention to the otherness of victims and the otherness of yeah. criminals, and uh, it's always even now the talk in the media about. Is it the OPP or something that's decided they're not going to announce if the uh, perpetrator yep. was a man or a woman or a mm-hmm. victim was a man or a woman anymore? Um, and there's a lot of discussion about that. Is that right or uh-huh. not? And uh, um, for the most part, I welcome that, except when it comes to not being able to track statistics. You know, yeah, know, well, uh, that, that was one of the victims. central debates about the, the carding thing happening in Hamilton is, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Oh, we're not collecting racial statistics of people that we card, and then you know finding out that they actually were. But <clears throat> saying that they weren't collecting racial statistics seemed to be an indication that they weren't thinking about race when doing it or tracking it. And you know that says, well, this is unimportant to us. But actually, the importance is in identifying that systemically mm-hmm. they were doing so either consciously or subconsciously. Not mine to answer, but the doing so needed to be recognized, you know? Mm. So it's when we have issues of a racial nature being able to grapple with, like, could you imagine not speaking about uh, the Jewish nature of this building when speaking about what happened to the sidewalk outside, you know? It's... uh, it's part of the story, and too often it's a big chunk of the reason why a thing happens. And it's, <clears throat> it's really hard to reconcile. In a better world, we'd not have to imagine these things or ever at all. Um, there's, been, there's, there's been so much pain in the Jewish tradition, and, and, and not just the Holocaust, because, you know, historically going back, there's been an externalization and expulsion happening throughout history and in many different spaces and uh, <clears throat> and there's I, I'm, I'm very curious about the perspective that you would have on dealing with that um, because I would I would imagine th- through experience comes wisdom i suppose is what i would say and uh and if anybody was going to be wise about being uh treated as other i would imagine it would be the jewish people so i'm curious about you know what you say to young people who come to you with these experiences and and the why of it i think we're we're lucky that for the most part nowadays we have Uh protection from uh, the 
law enforcement and so like uh, it's not Nazi Germany now we're yeah. very lucky maybe it's going to become that again I, sh- I shudder to think of where it could uh-huh. get to uh, I don't think that's an impossibility but at the moment it's not yeah um, but we are still experiencing hate and we have that collective memory of much worse times and I think we need to use that as a impetus to stand up for other mm-hmm. more vulnerable people and similar vulnerable people yeah. and to work on eradicating hate in all its forms um, everywhere um, and uh, in that way we can think of ourselves as being somewhat fortunate that we have minimal experience but still real experience of that uh, hate even at the um, no hate uh, conference at McMaster mm-hmm. that I was at waging action against racism and hate in, in Hamilton yeah. um, there was a lot of talk about the uh, what do they call it? the squishy middle like the the 80% of mm-hmm. people who don't even realize there's a problem. They're all they're white mainstream yeah. people, and they think there's no racism in Hamilton. There's no prejudice in Hamilton. Everything is great for everybody, and they don't uh-huh. know uh, why there's talk about it in the media when there is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I bet a lot of people have the uh, fortune, quote unquote, of being mm-hmm. able to live that way. They go about their lives as a sure. white person, not encountering hate themselves, and. Uh, earning good livelihoods and so on and uh, and without even realizing it just yeah. ignoring the problems that exist with other uh, against other people all around them uh-huh. um, we have the fortune of experiencing some persecution that allows us to be more compassionate and to try to help others and hopefully can you harness that and use it for a positive uh, uh-huh. And I mean, it's it's an interesting perspective, and, I, and I'm I'm thankful that you, you actually use the word fortune in there because it's, you know, that's making lemonade out of lemons right there is describing an oppression as as a fortune of of an experience, and it's I'm trying to reconcile and, and looking at other people in the community reconcile what happened at Pride this year, and and. You know what's happening in general about anti-queer and trans and non-binary sentiments in in the community, and 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 I, I like I try to look at the positives of it. It's like you know we are stronger as a community because of having to come together, and you know, and and that's become like my central idea in all of this is community, and. You know, what happens when systemically there's failures to protect or, you know, when the system isn't necessarily set up to protect, it's, you know, it, it can't stop the undercurrent, you know, and and that's what I feel is happening now is the undercurrent is there. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, pronouncedly upfront. It's yeah. just, you know, actively denied by people in positions of power. So it feels like there's not someone there to protect. And it feels like, uh, you know, the police can't do the thing that I wish that they could do because it's an undercurrent and very few pronounced incidences. And, 
So I'm left with, we're a little bit stronger together than we are separately. Mm-hmm. And I'm left with, well, we know each other better. And, and these ideas of, of these kinds of things. And, <clears throat> and it's, it's wonderful to have a, uh, a, a sense of community, which is something that was really powerfully missing from my life personally for, for a really long time. And, and I've kind of built a little bit of a community around myself with my Facebook presence and stuff like that. But it's, you know, Facebook's almost not real life. Mm. It's kind of like you might see those people every once in a while and be like, I recognize your face, carry on. Mm-hmm. And interact with them two hours later on Facebook. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, and I think this is, this is like the, for me, a powerful thing that I've been missing out on. I, I grew up in a, a town of about a thousand people and there I knew everybody and people hold each other accountable, you know, and, and I moved to Toronto and nobody looked at me, you know, mm-hmm. and I could do anything. And it was just like, it was this wild realization that I was anonymous and free. And that was really wonderful for a while and i find myself now that i'm you know in my 40s really kind of a little bit lost um and and like the lemonade that i'm making from the lemons that is the current situation is there are people who reach out to me and ask me if i'm okay you know and there are people who know me and care uh which is unexpected and really quite beautiful. And I'm very grateful for it. Um, so thank you for, for putting it in that way of, <clears throat> of imagining it as a strength that is gained, you know, because if there's so much lost, there has to be a little bit gained. Um, sorry. It's... <clears throat> as religious communities kind of have been dwindling in numbers. Um, I, I've spoken to a number of folks who, uh, you know, are responsible for churches in, in a couple of folks in Hamilton responsible for churches. And, uh, you know, there's a concern about, well, where is this a century from now? This church was here 150 years ago, and and how do we make sure that it's here and functional in 150 years? And you see them one after one turn into you know condos or whatever the the other thing is, and <clears throat> and not that you know this place that Jacob is is in danger of that anytime with any immediacy, but maintaining a community is a powerful thing, and seeing those numbers dwindle over time. <clears throat> I think a lot of people are missing one of the most powerful things mm-hmm. of faith. Um, and that's presumably a thing that you deal with often. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I think that in, a, in some way, social media is, a, is to blame for a lot of this. People don't feel they need to go places, to go to events, to go to, to hang out with friends because they're yeah. just sitting at home and 
interacting with their sure. devices uh, the whole time, and it gives people a kind of immediate false sense of togetherness with other people yeah. until they really need that human connection or human touch or a shoulder to cry on. You can't cry on your device, right? You need, uh -huh. a, you need a real shoulder, uh, and then they don't have it. Um, that's a that's a big problem. On the other hand, I I see something positive starting. I hope that it continues to build up, and I think that's in the sphere of social justice. I see that our yeah. own community seems to be building up and gaining traction because we're involved in many social justice projects around the city, not specifically Jewish ones, but mm -hmm. you know, soup kitchens and uh, and going to to uh, Pride and to other uh, events and, and uh, fighting homelessness and, and things like that, standing up for, for the vulnerable, that attracts the young people. Mm -hmm. And so we're getting community back in that way when we come together to do something that you, yeah. there's only so much you can do on Facebook with sending some money to this or sure. to that, but, uh, but you need to have a physical presence to be serving soup to a person who can't mm -hmm. afford to buy the soup, right? So, yeah. So I, I hope <clears throat> that, uh, that that's the future for um, religion. I think religion in general and Judaism is undergoing a transformation. It's not going to disappear, but it might look very different yeah. in the future, and I think that's okay. I think that's natural. Uh -huh. That's what it needs to be. I think it it always was supposed to be very uh, ethics oriented, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and it's becoming more sophisticated. We don't yeah. need religion to explain for us why when I drop a ball it falls to the floor instead of mm -hmm. flying up into the sky because we have science yeah. to explain that. Uh, we don't need to be imagining some uh, invisible man in the sky zapping down lightning bolts and pushing the ball to the floor. Mm -hmm. So we've become more sophisticated and at the same time we can uh, uh, identify um, a growing feeling inside each of us that uh, we ought to be doing the right thing, we ought to be helping other people, we ought to be living ethical lives and so on. Yeah. That's my understanding of God really, uh, mm -hmm. when you come to know your own drives to do good, you're coming to know God. Yeah. And uh, so I think that, like I said, religion is undergoing a transformation and it will even more so into the future and some of the buildings might look different or might uh, combine and so on, but, uh, mm -hmm. but the spirit of, of it all, uh, of the, the ethics of it is going to survive and we'll see what becomes of it, but uh -huh. I think that's a... What? Regarding God, there's a people would look at you know most of the western world like you know America and much of Europe and stuff like that as you know Christian spaces and stuff like that and and I look at how many people go to church and actually engage in Christianity in any kind of real way as it, it's pretty minimal compared to the amount of people that consider themselves generally Christian. And the the big man in the sky and hell and, you know, these things are, are things that are like cultural ideas of what Christianity is and not accurate at all to any of like the real 
you know, when you read the Bible and get down to it and talk to a minister or a priest, and you know, it's it's not that stuff that they they dig into. Is there much of a, a gulf between the cultural and cultural understanding of Judaism and the perhaps overall cultural enactment of Judaism and the um, deeper understanding of Judaism that somebody like, say, a rabbi or somebody that's very devout might have um, in similar senses? Or is that gulf smaller in Judaism than perhaps it is in Christianity? Mm. Um, my sense is probably smaller. Mm -hmm. um, my sense <clears throat> is also that probably the less religious Jewish people growing up in a place like Canada or the States uh, who are kind of culturally exposed to Christianity on TV, in school, wherever they turn, uh -huh. um, they may have accidentally picked up a very kind of Christian type of outlook on God, sure. like the yeah. man in the sky type thing. Bearded, bearded white guy, sure. Bearded white guy uh -huh. in the sky. Um, so um, so that, that kind of can confuses things. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of uh, when I was in Sweden in the uh, I was teaching in the religious school there and I was having a conversation with these little kids who must have been in grade four or something like that mm -hmm. and I started off the first lesson by asking them is God a boy or a girl and like I went around the room asking each of them what do you think is God a boy or a girl mm -hmm. and one after one they would say boy 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 man man and I'm like, why do you say that? Like, God has, for in Judaism especially, God has no body at all. Yeah. So, so what makes God more manly than womanly? Um, but they would always answer things like, well, when we read Bible in Swedish translation, it's always with male pronouns, or mm -hmm. anytime God is depicted in a movie, he has a very deep manly voice, uh, or... Uh, uh, yeah, things like that. Um, and so, first lesson was always telling them it's just not true. God has no body, God has no sex, no yeah. gender, God is God. And, uh, and I make that uh, conscious effort uh, to move away from using any pronoun with God mm -hmm. because of that. I, I don't want God to be more accessible to men than to women. Sure. Um, um, so, but it, uh, and then they'll say, but, you know, if you open the Torah, it does use male pronouns for God. Yeah. And then my answer is, well, it usually does, but sometimes God is described in very feminine uh, um, terms as well. And the fact of the matter is that Hebrew is a completely gendered language like French. Mm -hmm. There is no... Yeah. Uh, There's no drinking a male beer in so, French. Right. Yeah. So uh, a table is masculine and the ceiling is feminine, but it doesn't mean that we imagine mm -hmm. the table wearing pants and the ceiling wearing a skirt. It's yeah. just the way the language works and well, it doesn't so have the same in significance. In Hebrew, is that an active passive kind of thing? Like in no. French, sometimes it's an active or consumptive right. uh, thing. No, in, in Hebrew, it, it just comes across as very random. Yeah, uh, interesting. Huh. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure why. Like I say, uh, um, a shulchan, a table, is a masculine word. Kise is uh, also a masculine word, but the ceiling is feminine. And uh, uh, and then you... Uh, 
sometimes you'll have two different words for the same item and depending on which one you're using you have to use a masculine or a feminine pronoun just because the specific word takes a yeah so uh, in the same way when the Torah describes God with a certain pronoun it's just a linguistic convention in that case and it uh -huh. shouldn't be understood as man God yeah. well my takeaway is that God's non-binary basically mm -hmm. which is you know I think the the very idea of binaries in our society like we live in a in a space and, and culture in which you're either a cat person or you're a dog person make your choice take your mm -hmm. stand and it's I can like both. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Relax. Take it down a notch. And um, the reinforcement of those concepts as, as you know, being pillars, you know, uh, the pillars of gender and how gendered behavior plays out and, you know, and you must be, you must be, you must be. And the self-reinforcing natures of those things can be, you know, really constrictive and, and, and culturally damaging, I would say. I agree. So it's uh, I, I'm glad to hear that you know you engage in a way that uh, that doesn't necessarily gender God because that's that's probably a very powerful thing for some people, especially in you know youthful folks. Right, I think it's very important. Yeah, um, we should wrap up. I know you got you got uh, wonderful rabbinical things to be doing, and and thank you for. I, I know this is a time of holidays for you guys, and, and there's so many important things going on, so thank you for taking the time, especially in the midst of this. My pleasure. Thank it's you deeply for appreciated. offering me the opportunity. Mm -hmm.